The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I heard through the grapevine that there was a pool where people had thrown in to see how long this series would go. I said the first week that it would maybe be a couple weeks, and I heard that some people thought it might go up to six or seven. But here we are, week four, and I'm pretty confident that we're going to finish today unless uh, the Lord just does something that we're not expecting. But just so you know, I always want to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit's doing. You know, when I, when I began this year, I had no intention of doing uh, just some short sermons, a short series, I should say. No, haven't been short sermons. Uh, a short series on faith that saves. And, and I just felt just four weeks ago, the Holy Spirit just pressing upon me and constraining me like, look, you need to talk to uh, the people of capital about faith. What what is faith about? And I think now as we're preparing, you know, we're going to go into Easter, and then we're going to go into John chapter six, and now you're going to have the footholds uh, that you need to really uh, begin to study John chapter six and see this reality of the false disciple. I mean, it's so sobering in John six what we're going to see these people that had some type of intellectual belief in Jesus, but yet in the end wasn't saving faith. So if you've been with us the past three weeks, uh, we've already looked at eight elements or characteristics of saving faith. And I'm just going to give those to you so you can get caught up. I'm not going to uh, unpack those. You can go back and, and look at the previous messages. But we've seen that faith is supernatural, childlike, repenting, surrendering, living. It's a living faith. It's self-hating. It's treasuring Christ. It's a treasuring faith. And then, that, and then it's an urgent faith. It's an urgent faith that presses to Christ with the will. So, I want you now to look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. This is a very important verse on saving faith. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. You've probably heard this before. Maybe uh, you've memorized this verse. But Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we look at that verse, and key words jump out at you. You know, key words jump out at me, and I think the words that that immediately jump out to us are confess, confess with your mouth, that word believe, that's the Greek word pistuo, it's the same word for faith, it's the, the, the verb form. And then saved, right? That's, that's important. You know, if you do these things, you will be saved. Now, I think the word that is overlooked in this passage, the word that we skip over, is that word heart, 
heart. I want you to circle that word heart. It's the Greek word cardia. It's where we get our English word cardiac. It, it basically comes right into English. And what Paul is saying is, is the faith that saves is a faith of the heart. That's where it has to be. It's not just a faith of the intellect. It's a faith of the heart. In Scripture, the heart is the center of your spiritual life. The heart is, is basically synonymous with your, your soul, but it's, it's the thinking, feeling, willing portion of your soul. So let me give you a couple examples. This is First Chronicles 28, 19. David says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Notice how in, in that verse, the heart thinks, the heart has a mind. That's important to understand. That, that your soul has a thinking component to it. It's not just, it's not just your, your physical brain, okay? Hebrews 4.12 writer of Hebrews says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The thoughts and the intentions of the heart. When we look at the heart biblically, the heart consists of three things. Okay, and I want you to, to jot these down. I want you to know these because you need to know how you're wired, how you function, how your soul functions. Your heart consists of your mind. Your heart consists of your affections. Those are your loves. And the heart consists of your will. Now, your will always acts in accordance with your mind and your affections, you don't do things you don't love to do, right? You don't do things that you don't think to do. The mind and the affections drive the will. But that's your heart. That's what your heart consists of. So Paul says, right, that you have to believe in your heart in order to be saved. Now think about this logically. If you have to believe in your heart to be saved, what does that mean? It means that you have to believe with your mind, with your affections, and with your will. And we've talked a lot about the will. Last week we talked about the urgent need to press into the kingdom. But this morning I want to begin by talking about the mind. That faith is an action of the mind of your heart. And that's why the Bible describes faith as a knowing faith. And that's very important to understand because sometimes uh, the world views faith as a blind leap. Maybe you remember Soren Kierkegaard. He said, faith is like a blind leap into the darkness, right? You, you don't know what you're jumping into. You ever do those trust falls, you know, where you just close your eyes and, you know, people end up in the hospital. It's, it's this blind faith, right? That, that, that's, this is how our world largely views faith, and that's not how the Bible describes faith at all. 
The Bible describes faith as a knowing faith that your mind knows what it's believing, that biblical faith isn't irrational. It's the most rational thing in the world to believe in God and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving faith is a reasonable faith. It is the belief that we come from nothing that is irrational. It's the belief that we're descendants of primordial goo that's irrational. Christian faith is rational. Do you hear that? It is rational to be a Christian. It's the most rational thing in the world. Now, uh, I came across an illustration of A.W. Tozer that explains this, and he explains it so well. And the illustration of this is simple. It's the tabernacle. Do you all remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament? The tabernacle was where the sacrifices uh, were made. It was uh, lots of curtains go, uh, going around it, and there was a part that was exposed to, to the, uh, the sun and the elements, and then there was a, a tent, and inside that tent was the, the quarters of the priests, uh, the, the holy place, and then the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And in many ways, our knowledge of God that we have is like that tabernacle. And I'm going to explain this. First, you have that outer court. The outer court is what's exposed to the sun. It's not covered. Everyone can enter into that outer court. That's, remember, where the sacrifices were made. That outer court responds, uh, corresponds to general revelation, General revelation. Now, that's a theological word, but it's an important term that you need to understand. General revelation is knowledge that God gives to everyone. And it's called general because it's given to everyone generally. And it's also called general because it communicates general qualities about God, that God is omnipotent, that God is eternal, okay? So it's general knowledge that God gives to every single person. Every single person has general revelation. And God gives this knowledge two ways. The first is internally, internally in your soul. Every single person has the knowledge of God in their soul. And I want to show you this. We're going to do a little exercise right now. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine yourself not existing. You don't exist. Imagine yourself not existing. Okay, open your eyes. Could you pull it off? Raise your hand if you got to the point where you realized that you no longer existed. Okay, N not a single hand. Every single, because here's what's going on. The more you think about not existing, the more you realize that you're thinking, that you are there thinking. It, do you remember Rene Descartes? What did he say? He said, I think, therefore I am. If you think, then you know that you exist. So that's a certainty that you can go to the bank with. 
you exist. And therefore, if you know that you exist, you know that God exists. Why? The law of causality. Something never comes from nothing. Every cause, or excuse me, every effect must have a cause, right? That's the law of causality. Nothing has never produced something. Therefore, someone produced you, God. Jonathan Edwards said, said it like this. He said, you cannot imagine in your mind a world without God because it's right here. God put the logic hardwired into your brain. So that's the internal revelation that every, every single person has. It's not just internal, though. It's also external. We're, we're still talking about general revelation. What happens when you walk outside today and you see the sky and, and the birds and the flowers? I mean, this place is beautiful, right? I mean, Raleigh's like a little piece of heaven. What are you seeing? You're seeing God communicate to you his character through the things that are seen, right? That's Romans 1.19. Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. John Calvin said it like this. He said, The world is a cosmic theater of God. That you go out in the world, you look up at the stars, you, you see the animals that God's created, all of it is testifying and putting the glory of God on display so that you are without excuse. Every single person in the world has this knowledge. Every single person understands that God exists from what he has created God has revealed himself so clearly in the things that he has made that it is impossible to not know that God exists. So the problem in the world today is not that God has not communicated himself through revelation. Here's the problem. You know, you talk to an atheist. The problem is, is that they've suppressed the revelation that they've been given. And they suppress the revelation that they've been given because they despise God. As soon as you admit the fact that there is a holy God in heaven, then you have to come to grips with the reality that he's a lawgiver and you're accountable to him. And so people suppress these truths that we've just talked about, the internal and external witness of God, they suppress it in their hearts. And they can suppress it so long that they convince themselves that God doesn't even exist. And you know what the Bible calls that person? A fool. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. The fool tells himself in the heart that there is no God. You see, a fool isn't about intellectual horsepower. It's about moral depravity. It's about suppressing the truth about God. Stephen Sharnock, a Puritan, said, A fool is one that hath lost his wisdom and right notion of God and the divine things which were communicated to man by creation. 
How does this happen? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 1.18, he says that by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. You see, there's no true atheist. There's no true atheist. There's just fools. So that's the outer court. That's, that's the general revelation that God gives everybody. Does that save? No. You have to have more than that to be saved. You have to have supernatural revelation, what's called special revelation. Special revelation is direct communication from God. And what Tozer said symbolizes that is the court of the priests, the holy place. That's the the larger outer room in the tent. And that's where the altar of incense, the lampstand, the showbread, uh, all those things were uh, located. And that's where the priests performed many of their priestly functions. And this corresponds to the special revelation that's given to us through the Scriptures, through the preaching of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So in order to be saved, you must hear or read the good news of the gospel. That's, that's special revelation directly from God that's given to us. Let me give you an application of that. When we read a verse of God's Word, it is direct revelation from God. When I read Romans 10.9 earlier, it's just as if God is speaking. God spoke and still speaks through his word. If you want to hear the word of God, read the Bible. If you want to hear God's voice out loud, read it out loud. The Bible is the word of God. It's this special revelation, and that's why the evangelists go out proclaiming the good news of the gospel, the word of God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So this Special revelation must be heard, right? If, if there's a, uh, a lost people group somewhere in the world, someone needs to take the gospel to them in order for them to be saved. They must have this knowledge. You've heard that quote from St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Have you all ever heard that before? I think, I think if you've been around church long enough, you've, you've, everybody's heard that. It's, it's, it's got great sentiment to it. What he's saying is you want to live your life with the gospel on display. But I would submit to you, you haven't preached the gospel unless you've opened your mouth. Because the gospel is propositional. It, it's communicated through propositions, through words, through the word of God. So we must bring this gospel to people's lives. Now, is that enough to save someone? Is the knowledge of the gospel, is the, the general revelation, the knowledge of God, is that enough to save? No, it's not. Because we have to press in what's left in the tabernacle, the holy of holies. 
What happened in the Holy of Holies? The Holy of Holies is where the experiential knowledge of God takes place. You remember the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was held. And you remember what was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? It was called the mercy seat. And there were two angels on the top of that cover. These angels were made of pure gold. And their, their, their two cherubim and their wings touched each other. And in the middle of that mercy seat, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would first sacrifice a bull for his own sins. He would put that blood on the mercy seat. And then he would sacrifice a goat, and he would put that blood on the mercy seat. And the goat was for the sins of all the people. And when he would do that, the very presence of God was experienced by the high priest right there in the midst of the mercy seat. So, God was said to dwell in the tabernacle, and specifically in the Holy of Holies, right there on the mercy seat. So, God was experienced personally. And for saving faith to take place in the mind, you have to experience Christ firsthand in the mind. I want to show you this. I want you to turn to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is a very important verse regarding salvation. Notice what Paul says. He says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's that a reference to? Creation, Genesis, creative ability. He says, God has shown in our hearts, notice that emphasis on the heart, to give the light of the knowledge. There it is. It's the knowledge in the mind of the heart. And what does this knowledge consist of? It's of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This knowledge, this gnosis, is experiential. It is the knowledge that it allows you to truly begin to comprehend God, to know Christ. The Puritans used to call this a felt knowledge of Christ. It's something that you know and feel in the mind of your heart. You remember John Wesley? He came all the way over to Savannah as a missionary. He wasn't born again. On the way back to England, uh, he was in the middle of the storm, and all these Moravians were on the boat praising God in the middle of the storm. And Wesley realized, man, I don't have that type of faith. He comes back to England, famously goes Aldersgate Street. He hears uh, Luther's preface to the, to the epistle to the Romans being read. And you remember what he said? He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. It was that experiential knowledge of Christ in the heart. Jonathan Edwards, he grew up Christian home, graduated from Yale studying theology, but it wasn't until his 20s that he was converted, that he had this experiential knowledge of God in the heart. I want, you, I want you to listen to how he describes it. 
He says, the first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words found in 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the keen eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read those words, there came to my soul and was as if were diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, a quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy God and be swept up in Him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in Him forever. That is the experiential knowledge of Christ in the mind. So you might be asking, how do you know if I've experienced that? How do you know if you've experienced the experiential knowledge of Christ in the mind? Here's one of the ways that you can know. You cannot not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot not believe in Him. I'm not saying that you don't have doubts, but I'm saying at the end of the day, you cannot not believe And here's why. Because you know Christ experientially. You've met the man in your heart. Do you remember that old hymn? But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I know him I know him like I know another person. And when you have that experiential knowledge of Christ, when you know whom you have believed, it chases away the doubts that are in your heart because you have that experiential knowledge of Christ. So that's knowing faith, knowing faith. The next one I want to look at this morning is honoring faith, honoring faith. And we've been talking a lot about the honor of God on Sunday nights. I would encourage you to come because this is just really a snapshot of some of the things we've been talking about on Sunday nights. But conversion really can be described as an awakening to the reality of God, right? You know, you're going on through your life, something happens. Maybe a friend dies. You go to the funeral. Maybe you get a diagnosis from the doctor. Maybe a friend or a family member drags you to a church service and you hear a message. But God begins to do something that begins to awaken your heart to the reality of divine things. But what happens with saving faith, and you, and you saw this just with what we were talking about with 2 Corinthians 4, is that God communicates himself to you in the heart. And so you are awakened then to the reality of God. 
you're awakened to the reality of a holy God. And all that begins to matter at that point, because once you've seen a holy God, you begin to forget yourself. You know, Jesus, Jesus said in John 5, he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? You know, you think, how can, how can I, in my mind, stop caring about my honor and my glory? How can I stop worrying about the people who pat me on the back and what people think of me? How can I get past myself? Well, the answer is to see God. Once you come face to face with Christ, you begin to think of, forget about yourself really quickly. And, and you begin to be consumed with Christ's honor, His glory, in this reality of God. And I think that's something that we've lost in recent history. You know, we've reduced salvation to, well, do you want to have a happy life? Do you want to go to heaven? Well, of course, everybody's going to check those boxes. But Jesus defined salvation as the knowledge of God, to know God, to enjoy God forever. Heaven is worthless if Christ isn't there. When you study the preaching of the apostles, and I want to show you this, their preaching was filled with a proclamation of the character of God. They called people back to remember who God is, to know who God is, and that God demands that they get right with Him, that they repent of their sin. I want to show you this from Acts chapter 17. Turn to the left to Acts chapter 17. I didn't put this in your notes because I would have to kill another tree to do it. So, grab a Bible, make sure you have a Bible, and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to begin with verse 24, and I want you to just follow along in your Bible in Acts 17. Let me give you the context while you're turning there. So Paul has come into Athens, and if you've ever been to Athens, you know that Athens is the great center of philosophy and ideas. And Paul is there waiting in Athens for, for Timothy and, and some of his other uh, brothers at arms to, to come meet him in Athens. And he's walking through the city, and apparently he comes across a statue, and, and the sign on that statue said, to an unknown God, in case we miss one, because there were thousands of uh, gods and goddesses being worshipped in the city of Athens. And Paul was stricken in the heart. He was burdened by the Holy Spirit to begin to proclaim Christ. And so he begins doing that in the streets of Athens, and people begin hearing about this. And they grab him, and they say, hey, we want to hear more of this. And so they take him to what is called the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. Now, if you've seen a picture of Athens, you know uh, that the defining point is that temple of Athena, up on the Acropolis, right? You know, think that big hill with the big temple of Athena. Now, right below that, as you're making your way up to the, the temple of Athena and the Acropolis, is this hill, 
Okay, it's not as high as, as the, the temple, but it's this distinct, distinct hill, and that's where they would go and debate and hear ideas. So, that's where Paul goes, and they ask Paul to basically share his message. And I want you to notice how, how Paul begins with this reality of God. Look at verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So, what, what, what's the, the context here? There's all these temples, right? People are seeing the temples right above him. And he's saying, look, the real God doesn't need these temples. The real God uh, isn't served, he says in verse 25, by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What's he saying? He's saying that God is transcendent. That God is, is God's not something that you can fashion with your hands out of stone or wood. That God is the transcendent creator. He doesn't need anything from you at all. God has self-existed for all of eternity. Then he says that God is also the creator of all mankind. Look at verse 26. He made from one man. Isn't that being challenged today? He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God is the creator of man, and God is sovereign over man. God is providentially governing the affairs and the actions of men. You know, some people, uh, the deists used to teach that God created the, the world and then, what, walked away. No, 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 no. God is actively involved in the universe, controlling, governing. He's sovereign. He's Lord. And it is to this God that Paul says that we are to orient ourselves. Look at verse 27. He says that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So some Greek philosophers, uh, the first quote that you see in verse 28 is from a Greek philosopher named Epimenides. Uh, In him we live and move and have our being. Paul's just simply affirming something that they already know, supposedly, about God. At least one Greek philosopher has said about God. And then he quotes this other poet and he says, for, it, for we are indeed his offspring. He's saying, look, God is controlling, and there's even people that you know that have said this. Then he really goes for the heart. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image found by the art and imagination of men. You see what he's doing here? He's correcting their understanding of God. Do we need to do that when we evangelize today? My goodness. Before you can even begin to discuss 
what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, you need to correct some misconceptions about God, about the fact that God created you. I remember one time Francis Schaeffer said, if I were on the phone with, or on, the, on a plane with somebody for an hour and I had an hour to share the gospel, I would spend 55 minutes talking to them about the fact that God created them and who God is and five minutes talking about the fact of Jesus Christ and his redemption. Because we have a lot of work to do in telling people about who God is. Because what Paul is establishing is, is if there is a God who created us, then we are accountable to that God. Look at verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That means to turn from your sin. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. So now he gets to Christ. Notice that phrase, God commands you to repent. He's not asking God's not suggesting, God's not recommending, God is commanding you to repent. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you need to know that there's a God, and God commands you to believe in the Son that He's given. He commands you to believe. And that's why Paul describes true faith as the obedience of faith. That's Romans 1.5. He says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And then Romans 16, 26, he says, according to the command of God to bring about the obedience of faith. It's, it's, coming, it's coming to face, it's, it's coming face to face with the reality of God and realizing that God commands you to repent and believe in the only provision that he's offered to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. If you've come on Sunday night, you've heard me mention this documentary I watched about uh, these mountaineers who climbed K2. K2 is the, the second tallest mountain in the world, and many think it's the most difficult mountain to climb. And in the documentary, the, the cameraman is following these climbers as they're walking on the path just to get to the base camp. So they're walking through the mountains. They're trying to get to the base camp where they're going to begin to make their ascent up the mountain. And there's this really cool moment where he captures when they come around the bend in the trail and they see the mountain for the first time. And when they see the mountain for the first time, they're stunned. They're floored. It's like they're overwhelmed with the reality that they're going to have to try to climb that mountain. They've come face to face with the mountain for the first time. Now, they knew it was the second tallest mountain in the world. They knew all these facts about the mountain, but they didn't know how awesome it would be when they encountered the mountain. And that's how it is with saving faith. You come face to face with God, and the weightiness of God overwhelms you. And this command that's given to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ overwhelms you. 
and you believe and you trust in him. This is why John says in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever does not obey the Son, you have a heart to obey the Lord. Okay, so that's honoring faith. So we've seen knowing faith, honoring faith, and then last, and this is so important, I, I save the best for last, okay, is loving faith, loving faith. So we've seen that faith is in the heart, and it's a faith of the mind, the will, and the affections. The affections are your loves. And so with your affections, you love Christ. You love the kingdom. You love God. And we've seen this actually over and over again throughout our study. We just haven't talked about it at length. Remember in Luke 14 when Jesus says, you know, if anyone wants to follow me, he must hate father and mother and husband and wife and children and even your own life. What's he saying? He's saying that your love for me has to be so great that by comparison, everything else is essentially hate. It's this love that overwhelms us for Christ and the Lord because of what he's done for us. I want to show you this. I want you to turn to the right, just one book now, to Romans, to Romans chapter 5. And we're going to end right here in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 5. Look at verse 5 of Romans chapter 5. Notice how Paul describes our affections for Christ and what's given to us by God. He says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as God gives you that knowledge of himself in the mind that we saw in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he also gives you this experience of his love. Notice what Paul says. He says that it's poured into our hearts, that it's, that it's uh, echo is the word, and it speaks of an overflowing of God's love, an, an effusion of God's love. The same word is used in Matthew 26, 28, when it says, for this my blood of the covenant is poured out. It, it's overflowing. And the Holy Spirit pours out this knowledge of the love of God in your heart. And what does this knowledge consist of? Well, look at verse 6. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's the knowledge that you are undeserving of anything that, that, that God has done for you, that Christ has done for you. He says, verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Verse 8, but God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You experience firsthand this overwhelming flood 
of the fact of the love of God for you. And, and you need to hear this very clearly this morning. This isn't just the love of God for the people out there. This is the love of God for you. The love of God for you. God has a special love for his children, and he gives us this love in our hearts, not based on our accomplishments, on our virtue, on our pedigree, on anything that we've done, right? That's, what, that's Paul's point. God, someone would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us while we were still sinners, rebelling against God. Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And when you come to faith in Christ, there is an acute sense of that love of God for you. There is an acute sense of that love of God for you. And it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming, and it's overwhelming because you know that you don't deserve that love. And God pours it out into your heart. My grandfather's favorite hymn is called The Love of God. And the, and the last verse says, Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, the stretch from sky to, to sky. And so when we come to faith in Christ, there's this overwhelming sense of the love of God. And then how do you respond to that love? with a deep thankfulness in the heart to God, with a love to God. First John 4.10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so, you know, I talk to people all the time, and they have questions about whether or not they're really a believer. And this is one of the key questions is do you have a love for Christ in your heart? And I'm not saying it's a perfect love. I'm not saying it, it's, a, it's, it's a love that's always overflowing. But do you have an affection for Christ in your heart? Because you felt the love of Christ for you. Do you have that love? And if you do, you have a desire to obey God, not to earn your salvation, because, but because you're so thankful and you want to please the Lord. It's that love of Christ poured out in our response to that. That's, that's the test, and, and that's, that right there really culminates what saving faith is. It's, it's the mind that you know who Christ is for yourself but it's also the affections. You love the Lord. You love Christ. You love him for who he is and what he's done for you. And when you love God and Christ like that, you respond in faith. That's what saving faith is. So do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? 
Do you love Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? That is saving faith. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the work that you've done in our hearts, opening our minds up to the truth, shining a light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ into our hearts, and pouring out the love of Christ in the hearts of those who believe. And I pray, Lord, for those this morning that are just sitting there and they're maybe saying to themselves, you know, I've got a cold heart towards God. I'm not really into the Lord. I come to church because I think it's a good thing to do, but I'm not coming to meet with God to know Christ. And I just pray, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to that person, that their heart would melt, they would see Christ, and that the love of Christ would be poured out in their hearts. They would come face to face with God and desire to obey the Lord in faith by trusting in his beloved son. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.